Episode 91, Choosing Better Healthcare Outcomes. Matt Darling from Ideas42 gives a primer on behavioral economics. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. There are a number of drivers that result in a patient's outcomes. For example, the quality of care in a clinical setting. According to Robert Wood Johnson and UWPHI, clinical care contributes about 20% to the patient outcome equation. 20%. That's a little less than most people might guess. 30% of that equation, the patient outcome equation, however, is driven by patient's behavior at home. Does a patient tend to sit on the couch with a cigarette and a growler most weeknights? I'm using a cliche to make a point, but it is inarguable that every patient, every one of us, makes a hundred decisions a day, which will, for better or for worse, affect our health. Today, I speak with Matt Darling from Ideas42 on the science and economics behind our behavioral choices. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Matt. Great. Thanks so much for having me, Stacey. Let's talk about behavioral economics. And why don't we just start from the very beginning? What is behavioral economics? The way I think about it is economics is a discipline that has been really effective But it's been effective in that it's always had this sort of idea of how people behave that is what's called the the rational actor model, that people do stuff that makes sense. And I think as anyone can tell you, a lot of the times we do things as human beings that maybe don't make the most sense. That when we're making decisions, sometimes there's these biases that get in the way. Sometimes there's stuff that we want to do that we never actually end up following through on. And so in the last maybe 40 years, there's been a ton of really great research coming out of psychology about specifically how do people make decisions? How do they approach different problems? And what behavioral economics is in a lot of ways is taking those insights and adapting them and putting them into the standard economics framework in a way that really lets us think about things from a a whole new perspective that gives us sort of both lenses on how people behave, how they make decisions, how those decisions become actions. And I think, you know, what it really comes down to from a high-level view is that people are really, really influenced by the context in which they're making decisions, that they procrastinate, they don't carry out important tasks, they get overwhelmed by choices. And so basically, we as behavioral economists who work on policy or work on procedure or work in healthcare, really think about what is the context that people are making decisions in and how can we alter that to make sure that they're making decisions that they would really want to be making. I can infer why that's important in the healthcare arena, but why don't I pose that question to you? Obviously, within healthcare, people are making decisions all the time. Of course, that's the case both at the patient level and the provider level. So when you start thinking about it from this point of view about, okay, what are the ways that people make decisions? So you think about someone 
who is being told by their doctor, you need to be working out more often. And they take that seriously. They want to work out more. Uh, the doctor's given them every sort of incentive. And, you know, it's important for them because it is part of their health. But then it's actually really hard to actually get going. That it's very easy to say, well, you know, I've been told that I need to start dieting more. I need to start exercising more. I'm going to start doing that but I'm going to start doing that tomorrow or maybe the day after. I'm just feeling not like today. And then similarly, I think on the provider side, that any given doctor, anyone in the medical system, they're going to be, there's so many decisions that they need to make. And when you think about just the perspective of people having these cognitive limitations, it makes it so much harder to make these decisions. And of course, within health, there's so many really high value, high cost decisions that people have to make. The word economics at the end of behavioral economics, I get the notion that this is economically related. In other words, as a healthcare consumer, any kind of consumer, I'm making certain decisions based on cost versus quality. Do I buy mm -hmm. guns or butter? Remembering my undergrad. <laughs> <laughs> but this sounds like it's more than that. In other words, if I'm deciding whether to be adherent to my medication or if I'm a provider deciding whether I do the evidence-based protocol or the one that I have been doing that seems to work for me, those aren't decisions that necessarily have a basis in cost. Right. Yeah. And I think one of the big things I would say within economics generally, too, is the sort of increased expansion of what is economics, right? So if you listen to, you know, the Freakonomics pod show, they would talk about the economics of sumo wrestling, the economics of crime. And so part of it's that is that sort of general expansion of how economics works. But I think also it is thinking about when I say behavioral economics, some people call what we do behavioral science, some people call it behavioral insights. I think all people who are doing this are taking this sort of very specific lens on human behavior. And the way we talk about it a lot is that you can imagine thinking that people are just very, very sharp all the time. They're always making rational decisions. And we call that sort of the, the Spock model from, of course, Star Trek Spock. You can also think about people as being very irrational or not making good decisions. And you can call that the Homer Simpson model, where people are just sort of going for donuts and not necessarily caring about what's going on tomorrow. And both of these are, are good models. They both, And I think they both actually have a big insight into how people behave. And I think we've all been Spocker and we've all been Homer at one point in our life. And so you can think about the in-between models. What are people like when they're usually pretty sharp in the way that maybe economics would suggest? But then there are cases where the context that they're making them a decision causes them to make a decision that might not be the best one for them. And we call this the, the Brad Pitt with a goofy beard model, because Brad Pitt is, of course, a very good looking guy. And if you ever look at a picture, you know, between movies, he always grows a sort of scraggly beard, which maybe isn't just the best decision for him to be making. <laughs> one thing that I have heard about rational decision making is that there's one big requirement, and that is transparency. It's very difficult to make a rational decision if you don't have all the facts. Mm -hmm. For example, I just finished reading Stephen Brill's book. It's called A Bitter Pill, or at least that's the big print on the front of the cover. It's something like America's healthcare system, why it's all messed up. That's my own version of the subtitle. <laughs> but one of the things that Stephen Brill said in the book, which I found very interesting, is that in healthcare, it's cost by proxy. It's very difficult to get accurate cost information, which is a huge part of this equation. 
And the reason for that is that a hospital might actually have a charge for something. But by the time you add all of the other stakeholders into the mix, like how much is the insurance company paying? How much did the medical device cost as intermediate, disintermediated or intermediated by a group purchasing organization in a secret backroom meeting? It's impossible to know how much something costs, even if the hospital publishes its pricing. So without that vital piece of information, do you think it's possible? Or how do you take that variable, that giant variable into account as you're trying to predict behavior based on pricing decisions when the cost is not available? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, what you said at the very beginning is that people want to have all the information at their fingertips when they make a decision. And I think in all of life, so much of the time, we don't have that information, right? Almost every decision that I make as a consumer of healthcare, but also just as a human being in my day-to-day life, I'm making in the presence of uncertainty. And I think with healthcare specifically, there is this sort of added layer of complexity, both because of sort of what you might call the structural impediments, just the way that the hospital and the insurance and the patient and the doctor all are sort of playing a role and all sort of see parts of the the cost part of it. But also just in that, I think it is just very, very complex. So if, if you looked at actually, I remember one time when I was first working on this and I was looking at like Medicare data on pricing and trying to figure out, okay, what is this procedure mean? And from someone who isn't trained within healthcare specifically, it basically was impossible to me to figure that out without sitting down and reading it for a half hour, an hour. And, you know, so much of the assumptions that we make within economics would be that people sort of costly absorb information. And of course, that's just not at all true. And so then you say, okay, what do people do what, as what's called a heuristic, something that's a, a sort of simple decision-making role for assessing you know, what the quality of the procedure is or trying to assess the, the cost of it. And what those heuristics might be might be incredibly effective in you know, some areas and then might not be very effective in others. One of my favorite studies looking into this was looking at women who had breast cancer and they're trying to decide what procedure to do and they could choose between a mastectomy and chemotherapy. Now, from a medical perspective, both of these treatments are equivalent, that the doctor would say that the mortality rates on both are roughly the same. They're both equally valid. And it's really a personal choice for you which one you prefer, because both, of course, have big personal costs. And what was interesting is that people tended to be choosing mastectomies more often And when they were actually interviewing them, they were saying, well, it sounds like people, when you talk about mastectomy, it feels much more visceral and physical to actually have part of you removed versus chemotherapy, which is a little bit harder to sort of wrap your head around. And so people were choosing that on the idea that it was more effective, despite what their doctor said. And then people did work on how you actually change risk communication. How can you really convey that these treatments are equally effective and that, you know, you should really be choosing it based on what your personal estimation of those costs are, rather than saying, aha, well, I think mastectomy is going to be a lot more effective because that's easier for me to wrap my head around. And you can imagine that being one heuristic people are using. And I think one of the difficulties with health, too, is thinking about when you're looking at the cost of a procedure. There's probably people say, oh, well, the more costly the procedure, the more effective it probably is, which isn't necessarily going to be the case here. 
Yeah, it is probably another very large confounding factor that cost mm-hmm. is often used as an indication of quality. And in healthcare, that couldn't be farther from the truth. In fact, often the opposite is the case, because if you get a clinical setting or a care provider who tends to do lots and lots of something, then the cost can be less expensive. Right. And what I think is really interesting about that is when we say, oh, people use cost as a proxy for quality, and that's not the case in healthcare, as you mentioned. And what's funny is that it it really is the case in most other domains that we're making decisions, right? That if I'm going to the store and I'm trying to decide what food to buy or what car to buy, generally, it's a pretty good assumption that cost and quality are going to be highly linked. And so it's sort of like people have this really effective rule for how to make decisions that basically the costlier a procedure is, the better it will be. And it's effective in most domains. But then if you try to apply specifically within healthcare, it's almost uniquely no longer effective. The basis of capitalism (laughs) is somewhat unapplicable here. So what do you do? So we were talking about how do we impact behavior here? How can we use the science of behavior in order to positively improve outcomes? And you said one of the ways is to effectively communicate risks in ways that patients maybe can absorb a little bit more easily or make them a little bit more tangible. All right. So now we've got this confounding factor of cost. You know, you can't just hold up the cost and use that as a decision making criteria. So what do you do instead? Like what's the stand in there? That's a great question. I'm not sure if I have a good answer. I think there is that level of trying to understand what is the basis that people are making these decisions. And and so people are probably, like we said, using cost as one proxy. There's probably also the ways that doctors are communicating information. So it could be about risk. It could be about cost. It could be about any given factor. And it is that these sort of contextual things matter a lot. Now, I think it's going to be very different and it'll differ sort of from procedure to procedure or from advice to advice. So, you know, if you think about a doctor who's giving advice to a patient and saying you should be taking this medicine, you should be exercising more, you should be changing your diet, what can we do to make it more likely that they'll follow those? And doctors, of course, trained as medical experts, they do get some training, of course, on bedside manner, but they're not necessarily trained in specific like how to motivate people or how to get people to translate what communications into actions. It's been said many times at this point that patient engagement is the blockbuster drug or solution of this decade. And what that assumes is that you've got engaged patients or that you've figured out what the magic is there in order to share a decision with a patient or in order to inspire the patient to take control and take part in the healthcare decisions or uphold their end of the bargain once they leave the clinical setting. Mm-hmm. Is there some sort of methodology or th- three-step triangulation or when you start to think about these things, what's the methodology or how do you frame this up? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, think about, you can imagine one thing being is when you're making decisions, having the patient involved and having them work with the doctor to come out with the decision. One of the the studies that we've done was looking at how, this was stuff we were doing in South Africa, but it was looking at how people think about 
HIV risk. And it was very interesting because when you talk to young women in South Africa and ask them, when you're thinking about partners, who are the people that you think are high risk versus low risk? Now, the actual data shows that people who are older tend to be high risk versus younger people tend to be a bit lower risk just in terms of the prevalence of HIV. But when you talk to young girls, they didn't necessarily make that connection. And one thing that we had actually made for them uh, and tested was sort of a little computer game where you just had to guess HIV risk across different demographic groups. Just playing that game, you would teach yourself very rapidly, oh, okay, here's the groups that are more likely to have risk. Here's the ones that aren't. And by walking through that from almost you know a game gamification perspective, it really did change their awareness of it. And what was fascinating about this study is we actually did a follow-up with the people six months later, and they actually retained that information, that it was just as good responses six months after that trial as they had done immediately after we had given them the information. It sounds like in that particular case, it was more a matter of making people aware of the fact that there were actually data points, that that there was information that they could be deploying in their day-to-day life to reduce risk. I think that's part of it, but I think it's also that they were learning it for themselves, right? You could imagine someone who gets a brochure telling them what their risks are. And, you know, maybe you read the brochure, maybe you don't. But the process of getting the information and then trying to sort of figure it out on your own. And so just by you're generating that information in your own brain, you're thinking it through and saying, aha, you know, this is why I didn't understand this before. Now I do understand it. So you can think about things that are almost what we call like guided choice, where you're making the choices completely, but you're maybe having a framework. Think about something like, when you're deciding to buy a flight, you look at the Boston to DC flights and Expedia lets you do all the sort of searches and lets you figure out, okay, do I want to weigh the flight time more? Do I want to have a morning versus afternoon flight? And really lets you see what those trade-offs are on your own. Whereas if you are, you know, and, and tries to give you sort of a way of managing that complexity and then making those choices yourself. Given that, let let me ask you this, Matt. I know that there was a lot of hoopla a couple of years ago about in McDonald's. Now you can see how many calories your Big Mac has, but also foodstuffs, cans and bottles. And subsequently, there was research done which demonstrated that it didn't make any difference. People were still picking the triple decker mayonnaise and bacon and Mm -hmm a chunk of cheese, (laughs) despite the fact that it had enough calories to feed a small village for six days. Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. And you think about when people are trying to design policies like this that are trying to influence human behavior, how are they thinking about people? Now, if you look at that one, what's this implicit model that they have for how people are making decisions? It's basically something like people want to reduce the amount they're eating, but they don't know how much it is. That they don't know that the the triple bacon cheeseburger has a lot of calories. So if we tell them, they'll change their behavior. If, If we just provide them with information... 
and we provide them with the information, and we're just not seeing any effects. And that tells me what I would say is that we've got the diagnosis a bit wrong, that we're thinking about it from the perspective of people are looking for this information, they can't find it. But I think most people actually knew that the triple bacon cheeseburger probably wasn't all that healthy, that it, you know, no people weren't necessarily thinking that it was... 800 calories when it was 1200. <laughs> and so it's definitely you think about it from a different perspective. So if people are overeating, what is it that is causing them to do that, especially if they are someone who really does regret that they're going to overeat over longer periods of time. And I think we've all experienced that Thanksgiving dinner where we say, oh, wow, that's I kept on eating and I kept on eating and I never stopped. And now looking back on that, that was the wrong decision. And that also reminds me of a situation with a family member recently who is diabetic and pretty much announced that she was not giving up ice cream because she liked it and life was too short. And she didn't want to give up the simple pleasures for anything. She'd rather be dead. Because it sounds like to me what I'm cottoning on to is that the way to change behavior is to really understand the source of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So you think about that person, like, I think ice cream is one of life's small pleasures and definitely don't want to say, give up on ice cream. Now, if you say, are people weighing the costs and benefits and deciding I'm okay increasing my diabetes risk if I can eat more ice cream? And maybe some people are making that decision very explicitly. And there is that waiting that you can consider. And I think that's probably very much true of a lot of people. If you think about what the risks are, and, and again, the benefits of ice cream, I think are very clear. But you can also think about it from other perspectives. So I'd say, you know, one thing is thinking when you're eating ice cream, right? So you've decided that you want to eat ice cream. How do you decide whether you're going to eat one scoop of ice cream or two scoops of ice cream? Uh, I bet a lot of people sort of think about if they're at diabetes risk, and then they're really tempted to eat ice cream, they give into that temptation, they probably feel kind of bad about that. They probably say, well, I've now done it. I've now been unhealthy. So I'm just going to go all the way and eat as much ice cream as I want to. But you can think about health isn't necessarily a binary. It is a gradient. And you could imagine someone maybe approaching it in a different way and saying, hey, it's okay to eat ice cream sometimes, or it's okay to eat ice cream in some quantities. But if you reduce the frequency or the amount by 20%, by 25%, that might be a much healthier position for you to be in. And again, I think it is really hard for people to make those trade-offs. In a lot of ways, we approach communicating healthcare and how important health is really does drive those sorts of decisions. I was thinking about so many programs that are trying to increase people's healthiness through exercise and weight loss and dieting, how do you conceptualize or how do you communicate that information to someone? If you're going to tell someone about a diet program and you want to make an advertisement for it, it's really hard to make something that doesn't just look like someone eating a salad or someone going for a run. It's really hard to basically show someone going for 20% more walks or eating 20% less ice cream. But even those very small changes really do add up. It's interesting because I am understanding something that I didn't quite get the point of until right now. A couple of years ago, there's an organization called the IHI and others, and they 
began suggesting to providers that instead of routinely asking patients, what's the matter with you, that they should ask what matters to you. That's really interesting. And yeah, in helping people make those decisions and even those very, very small frames can make a huge difference in people's behaviors. I know some of the work that one of our academic affiliates has done on has been on getting people to vote. And one thing that's really effective is not asking them, hey, are you going to vote this afternoon? But hey, are you a voter? And when you say something like, are you a voter, all of a sudden that triggers a lot of internal processes that people say, oh, right, I am a voter. I'm someone who does go out and vote in the election. That's part of my behavior. Even though you might be someone who really only votes every once every decade. And so I think there are ways, even these very, very small language things can make a big difference. So if you say, what's the matter with you? That triggers to me, okay, I'm going to complain about X, Y, and Z, what's upsetting me right now. Whereas you say, okay, what matters to you is almost gives you that explicit concept of, hey, what are the health trade-offs that you want to be making over the next year and saying, hey, if you're someone who, as you're weighing those trade-offs of eating ice cream versus reducing diabetes risk, how do you make those right calls? And maybe you want to eat more ice cream, but you can go for more walks or you can find other things to cut and really figure out with your doctor or on your own with the doctor's assistance, what are the, the best decisions for you to be making? Transitioning from the patient to the provider, because, I mean, nothing for nothing, we got some sea changes going on in the healthcare industry right now. Now we're moving into a completely different mindset. If an organization is going to be successful today, there's a lot of organizational psychology, if that's even a term, that's involved in turning an ocean liner. How can some of what you've studied apply to providers or apply to encouraging a provider to follow evidence-based medicine or do something in the EHR system, like making sure they always click here or do that in order to collect the correct data? I mean, there's probably a thousand daily activities that need to switch up a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, think about one example is maybe like overutilization of diagnostic tests, right? So I think that, and that's one of the common problems and is a big driver of costs and has a lot of downstream effects. I would say there's a lot of things going on here. So one thing might be, you know, when a patient comes in, this may be related to your question earlier, when you, you say, oh, what, what is the matter? And they say, okay, I've got X, Y, and Z, and I think I might have this condition. That basically sets up a provider in a place where they feel like they need to do something that, you know, they should order a test just to make it feel that they've addressed this concern. And so you can imagine something where the interplay between the healthcare provider and the patient right there, just the way that that interaction goes, could sort of lead the provider in a way that they feel like, okay, I should do something, even if the best available evidence really does indicate that they probably shouldn't be ordering any diagnostic tests. Another thing I would say, thinking about when you're a provider, you don't necessarily know how your utilization of certain treatments is going to compare to your peers, right? And one thing that's been really effective in a lot of domains within behavioral science is giving people a social norm, They're saying this is how you compare to other providers in your hospital or in your state or nationwide and giving them a feeling that like, oh, I didn't even realize that I was necessarily an outlier in this and that does give them not even a financial incentive, but saying, aha, 
maybe I should be changing my behavior to be more in line with how others are acting. Ideas 42. Who should call you and when? Right now, one of the things we're really excited about is trying to actually get into clinical settings and figure out what kind of problems really can be solved from a behavioral perspective. So if anyone is saying, I don't understand why my patients are doing this or why my physicians are doing this, even though everything indicates that they should, even though the incentives are in line, even though they've been very well educated and informed, it looks like there's something else that's going on. That's exactly the domain that we play in, uh, trying to figure out why people might be acting in ways that are surprising or don't necessarily make sense at your first glance. Thank you so much for being on the podcast, Matt. Thank you so much. It's great being here. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far. There are over 50 at this point with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.